brothers and sisters, I wonder if you would agree with this statement, that many of our churches lack men. It may not be true of the Heath, but it's true of many churches. We know that there are women who are backbones of the church, women who pray, godly women. And you'll find in many churches that actually to hold a ladies' meeting is much more common than a men's meeting. It's very easy to get women together, or fairly easy, and it's a lot more difficult to get men together. Now, this evening, I'd like us to look at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. And here we are going to see 12 men converted. In fact, Luke, the writer, is not too sure that it was actually 12. I don't know if you noticed in verse 7, but we read, now the men were about 12 in all. So there are about a dozen men in Ephesus who were known to be disciples. And Paul comes to Ephesus and he sees a wonder-working um, act of God in saving these 12 men. Now remember that Ephesus was a pagan city. It was a city where the goddess Diana was worshipped. There was also a lot of occult practice going on in that city. And eventually, when others were converted, people would burn their magic books. It was a dark city. And yet, as Paul returns to Ephesus, having been there on a previous occasion, he comes across these 12 disciples. He brings the gospel to them. And 12 go through the waters of baptism. What a wonderful start to the, the church there in Ephesus. Now, we're in the, um, on, on a missionary journey of Paul, and we're with him. He's been to Cancria. We read that in Acts chapter 18, and there he's done an unusual thing. He's um, shaved off his hair. Well, why was that? Probably Paul has taken a Nazarite vow, a vow of consecration to the Lord for a period of time, maybe up to two months, and having completed that vow, that consecrating vow to the Lord, he shaves his hair off. And then he desires to go to the feast in Jerusalem. And he's doing all he can to get there. It's said that there was a tradition that the hair that was shaved off would be presented in the temple in Jerusalem. But he wants to be there for the feast. And so he leaves Cancria, he goes to Ephesus, he preaches in the synagogue in Ephesus, he reasons with the Jews from the scriptures. They want him to stay, but he says, I can't stay. I'm on a mission. I've got to get to Jerusalem. On his way, he eventually travels to um, Galatia. We read that um, in verse 23. And Phrygia, the region of Galatia and Phrygia, because he wants to go back and strengthen some of the churches and the believers that he's um, ministered to in the past. And then we come to chapter 19. And Paul returns to Ephesus. He'd already told the believers there who'd pleaded for him to say that if possible, if it was God's will, we read that in verse 21 of chapter 18, God willing, he said, if it's God's will, I'll return to you. By God's grace, he returns and he has a spell in Ephesus. Now we're going to concentrate on verses 1 to 7 of Acts chapter 19. You may know that these Verses have been embroiled in controversy about the second blessing. We're not going to be sidetracked by that. We're going to concentrate upon the, what the Lord did in saving these 12 men. Now, I want us to um, look at three things this evening. The first thing I want to look at is this. What did these men lack? You see, Paul, as he comes across them, 
Initially, maybe they seem to be believers in the Lord Jesus. He recognises that they are disciples, there's one. But he recognises as he begins to talk to them, there's something very deficient in them. Maybe it's the manner in which they speak about spiritual things. Maybe it's their lack of knowledge of the Bible and certainly of the Lord Jesus. Maybe it's a great lack of experience. And so there's doubts that arise in the apostle's mind and he asks them a question. But when you first believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit, he asks. And they respond in this way. We haven't so much as heard as whether there is a Holy Spirit. So we're going to consider what did they lack? They were certainly deficient. And then secondly, what did they need to do? We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's words in verse 4. And he gives them really is implied specific things that they must do. And then thirdly, I want us to look at what is unique about the events that we read and what is common. There are certain things that are unique. We're going to look at this laying on of hands by the apostles. Remember, we have no apostles now. The speaking in tongues and the prophecy. We're going to look at that very briefly. But also what is common in their experience. Common not only for them, but for us in all conversion experience. So first of all, let's consider what did they lack. Now, verse 1 just tells us this. It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said. We're just told that they were disciples. Now, a good student of the Bible will read the Acts of the Apostles, and we'll look at the word disciples and see how it is used. And in the first 15 chapters of Acts, the word disciples is used with a reference to disciples of the Lord Jesus. So initially, when you read that word disciples, you may think that these are disciples of Christ. But as we read on, we realise that actually they're not disciples of Jesus Christ, but the disciples of John the Baptist. Now. I think we also need to say this, though they were disciples of John the Baptist, Paul initially is a little bit confused about them. That's why he asked the question. I don't know if you've um, come across people and you're not quite sure where they stand. Well, we're not the ones who are to determine ultimately who is the Lord's and who isn't the Lord's. It's the Lord who knows the hearts of his people. We are to accept people's professions of faith unless there's something deeply contrary in their lives. We are to confirm the saints, and when we see the grace of God in uh, our brothers and sisters, we're to name as, um, as brothers and sisters. Paul didn't hesitate to say to the Thessalonians, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. We're not to hesitate in giving the right hand of fellowship to those who belong to the Lord. But Paul couldn't do that initially. He has doubts. Surely they were men who were prayerful. They were religious men. The disciples, that means they were followers. They were following the teaching of the Bible, of the scriptures as best they knew, though they knew very little. They were certainly disciples of John the Baptist. They'd known a measure of conviction of sin. They'd been baptized, we read, and it was a baptism repentance. They realized that there needed to be a change in their lives. But they weren't yet disciples of the Lord Jesus. They hadn't yet come to an understanding of the cross of Christ and of his resurrection. They were God-fearers, evidently. They feared God, probably sought to do good. 
prayed, and yet they were not yet Christians. Some might say they were almost Christians, very close to the kingdom of God, but not yet. So what did they lack? Well, I would say to you that they lacked, in one sense, everything. You see, they lacked Jesus Christ. Yes, they'd been baptised, but John's baptism was preparatory. It was pointing forward. And when you realise that their response to Paul's question about have you received the Holy Spirit, you realise that their response is this. They haven't so much as heard as whether there is a Holy Spirit. You have to say that their knowledge is very, very low indeed. You see, those who were conversant with the Old Testament scriptures certainly understood the workings of the Holy Spirit in measure in Old Testament days. And John the Baptist himself, he would preach this, I baptise with water, but there is one who is coming after me. He shall baptise with the Spirit and with fire. John the Baptist had talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that would come through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would be the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. He and the Father would give the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And John the Baptist had taught that Jesus Christ would baptize. But these disciples of John haven't even heard this. Remember, they're living in a pagan city. Remember that there is a synagogue in that city. But they seem to have little understanding of the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures and the teaching of John the Baptist himself. And they're deficient in salvation. They do not know that there is a Holy Spirit and they have not the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I say these things, what would you say about the churches in Great Britain? We have many Protestant churches of various shades and colours. We have the Catholic Church. We have many people who profess the name of Jesus. But how many know Christ as Lord and Saviour? Many people pray. Many people, before they go to bed, say the Lord's Prayer. Many people recite Psalms or know the Beatitudes. Numbers of people have been baptised. But yet they haven't been converted. They haven't been born again. Jesus said, you must be born again if you are to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are still numbers of God-fearers, like these disciples of John the Baptist, who need to hear the gospel of Christ and close with him. So what did they lack? They lacked the Lord Jesus. They were not yet united to him by faith. And so I ask those who are listening, do you know Christ as your Lord and your master? Have you believed on him? Have you yielded your life to him? Have you recognised that it's not about you being good, it's not about your good deeds, but it's all about what he has done for you, living that perfect life that you could never lead, dying upon that cross in your place, taking the punishment for your sin, rising from the dead, and you a guilty sinner, casting yourself 
upon Jesus Christ and finding forgiveness, finding a new relationship with God, the Holy Spirit entering into your life and you being united with Christ. Are you lacking in salvation? Let's go on. We want to be specific. Secondly, what did they need to do? We'll look at verse 4. Paul says to them, John baptized with a baptism of repentance. You see, he wanted to know what sort of baptism that they had. You see, in the first century, there were different types of baptism. The Jews had begun baptizing during intertestamental days, and Jews would yet baptize Gentile proselytes. But they would certainly not baptize their own. They wouldn't baptize a Jew, wouldn't baptize a Jew. This was just for the Gentiles, the unclean ones. The Qumran community also had a special baptism. And then there was John the Baptist, and his baptism was this. He called not only Gentiles, but specifically Jews, and all Judea came out to him. This was something unseen, and he was saying to them, you need to renounce your pharisaical type of religion, your outward type of religion, your external type of religion, your religion of rules, your religion of self-righteousness. You need to be real before this holy God. You need to confess your sins. And so he called them to come to the, to the Jordan and to be baptized, confessing their sins, preparing themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And he pointed them to the Messiah. He would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, of getting ready for the Messiah. It was to lead men and women to cry out, in faith to Jesus Christ. It was preparatory. And these men had undergone John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. But then he tells them this, yes, John indeed baptised with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him will come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. That was the whole purpose of John's ministry. He would diminish, he would come off the stage of preaching, Christ would take center, center stage. He was forever a signpost, crying in the wilderness, saying, I'm a, a nameless voice, I'm a nothing. I'm just pointing to Messiah. Look to him. He is the Lamb of God. He is the final sacrifice. He alone takes away the sin of the world. You must believe on him. Venture on him, says John. Trust in him. That was the one thing, the one thing that these disciples of John needed to do to believe on Christ Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. Now, these men, hearing Paul's words, believe and are baptised. And we read, don't we, that they're baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus, now identifying with him. They've understood the gospel. Paul has taught them. They're baptized, they go under the waters. They show that they've died to that old way of life, all that external ritualism, all that trying to please God in the flesh, all that self-righteousness, and all those sinful ways, all that's buried, all that's in the past, they die with Christ. And then they come out of the waters of baptism, showing that they've been raised to a newness of life, their water baptism is symbolic of their spiritual baptism. 
They've been immersed into Christ now. They've been united to him by faith. They've died with Christ and they've been raised with Christ. That's their spiritual experience. They've now been converted. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within them. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They're new men. They're new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. And so they testify to their faith publicly through the waters of baptism. Yes, they've been baptized once, the baptism of John. But they need to be baptized a second time. Why? Because their first baptism wasn't Christian baptism. It was purely an identification with John. Now they belong to Christ. Now they belong to Jesus. And so they're rebaptized. They experience Christian baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism isn't salvation. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized and went to glory. It's faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone, that saves a person. But all who trust in him will want to demonstrate publicly their faith in Christ through the waters of baptism. And just last Sunday, our church had the privilege of going down to Newton Beach at six o'clock. Um, we chose that time hoping that it would be dry and hoping that there would be less people on the beach. We cordoned off an area of 30 because you're allowed 30 people for a public meeting. Others joined in who weren't in that public, uh, in that section. And a young man was baptised in the waters of baptism. He, like I, had been baptised as an infant. He, like I, had been confirmed at the age of about 14. But he, as a Christian, was going through the waters of baptism and giving his testimony. And there were people on the beach listening in. A family listened intently, talked to us afterwards. A lady walking her dog stopped, listened intently. He wanted to publicly declare his faith through the waters of baptism. And we were just so thrilled about that. As a result of that, one other has wanted to um, go through the waters of baptism, then another has asked as well. At this time of COVID, there are many restrictions that are placed upon us. It's not the mode of baptism that's important, is it? It's not the way we do it, where we do it so much. But we are to obey the Great Commission to go into all the world. Jesus came and spoke to them. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So this time, which is very difficult for us, COVID restrictions, yet we must fulfill the Lord's great commission. It's difficult for larger churches. I'm thinking of Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. I know there's a lot of controversy over that church, but you know, they normally would have a baptism every single Sunday. Yes, that's right, every single Sunday. How difficult it is for them when these restrictions come upon them. So my friends, what was the one thing that these men needed to do? Repent, yes. But repentance can never be separated from faith. Real repentance is joined to faith. No external repentance. It needs to be inward, a change of mind. 
change of mind regarding sin and regarding the Lord Jesus. Real repentance joined with faith in the Lord Jesus. Repent, believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptised. That's what these men needed to do and they did it. But then lastly this evening, I want us to ask, what is unique about these events and what is common? You see, there are some things that are very unique about these events that we're reading. In one sense, we could say the order of things, the way they happen, is not necessarily normative. You see, repentance we have here, we have faith, then we have baptism, and then after that, we have the laying on of hands and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Now, I say that's not normative because if you look at Acts chapter 10 in the household of Cornelius, it happens in a different order. Those in the household of Cornelius, they profess faith in the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They speak in tongues and prophesy. And after this, after this, they are baptised. You see, in the Acts, the order wasn't so much as important. What was important that there was these four elements occurring, repentance and faith in Christ, which brings salvation. Baptism as a demonstration of conversion and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. But I want to remind you as well that the book of Acts is dealing with a transitional period in church history. The writer to the Hebrews says this, that the the old covenant was vanishing away, was disappearing. The new was coming, the new covenant sealed in the blood of Christ. And so in the book of Acts, you'll find things that are not normative. For example, what Paul did, taking a Nazarite vow, was an Old Testament practice. He'd adopted it himself, not as a Nazarite from birth, but probably just for a couple of months for a specific purpose. That was part of his consecration to the Lord. That's certainly not normative. That may surprise us that he did that. Remember the book of Galatians and how he talks about all the rules and the regulations They've gone, the customs, the food laws, the Sabbaths, all these things are to do with the Old Testament days. It's all about Christ alone, faith in him. But he uses some of these laws at times for specific circumstances. Even wants Timothy to be circumcised for the purposes of evangelism amongst the Jews. And here, shaves off his hair, fulfilling a Nazarite vow. That's not normative. He's living in a transitional stage where he is evangelizing Jews. But also I would suggest to you that the speaking in tongues and prophecy are not normative. These were given on specific occasions. They weren't sought after, but they happened. And they happened with specific people present, always with apostles present. And they happened with certain groups of people. You know as well as I do, the first time it happened was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in fulfilment of that promise that the Lord Jesus gave. The promise of the Father was given. The Spirit fell upon those 12 apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke with new languages, with tongues. We read of about 16 people groups, different nations, Phrygians, Parthians, Medes, people from Rome. Cypriots, people from Cyrene, different nations were present and they all heard the word of God in their own language. What was happening? The gospel was coming in great power 
to the peoples of the world. Before in Old Testament days, God's salvation was confined mainly to the Jews, mainly to the Jews. Of course, Gentiles were brought in, but now it was different. The gospel was to go to the nations, and so this gift of tongues given, a demonstration that the churches of Christ is being inaugurated on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has been given, and these tongues are showing that it's for the nations. And then we come to Acts chapter 8, and we read of the Samaritans receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8, verses 15 to verse 17. Remember, the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. For them, the Jews were certain, sorry, the Samaritans were certainly not included in God's purposes. They were the despised people. But the church of Christ would include those. God had purposes to save them. But this, here's Acts chapter 18, verse 15. People in Samaria have been converted and they've been baptized, but now the apostles come down. When they had come down, they prayed for these people that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They'd only be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw through the laying of the hands of the apostles, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. Do you see? Peter and John come, they lay hands upon these Samaritan believers who've been baptized. And as they lay hands on them, something dramatic happens. It's something tangible. You see, we read that Simon the sorcerer sees something. We're not told it was tongues of flame. Almost definitely wasn't. Was it to do with the speaking of tongues? We don't know, but there was some form of manifestation. You see, God's spirit was now being given to a new group. The church of Christ began in Jerusalem, in all Judea. The gospel was going to, to go to Samaria, a new area, a specific area, a new people group. And as it came, there was this manifestation. These are my people. There was a speaking of tongues as well, probably, probably. But certainly as we come to Acts chapter 10, in Cornelius' household, as the gospel comes to the Gentiles, we see this manifestation again. Read with me Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 46. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who came with Peter, sorry, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized? Isn't that glorious? Peter wouldn't have brought himself to go into the Gentiles' home and preach the gospel. He had to have a vision three times in order to make him go. Such was the prejudice in the heart of a Jew. Yet he went and God worked and God was saying, these are my people also, the Gentiles, church amongst the Gentiles. And so we have this manifestation again of speaking in tongues. And then we come to the disciples of John the Baptist and other groups. You've had, first of all, the Jews on the day of Pentecost. Then you've had the Samaritans. And then you've had 
the Gentiles. But fourthly, you come to another group. And God is showing again, almost sealing, that the work of the Holy Spirit saying, these are my people also. And he gives this gift of prophecy. And the apostles are there laying on their hands. And there's a speaking of tongues. Yes, the gospel is for all the nations. Now, what is described is not prescribed for us. This was something that happened. It wasn't sought after. It came through the laying on the hands of the apostles who we no longer have. So we must say that it was God's grace in establishing his church. It was something foundational that was happening. Then we come to what is common. And I think we need to emphasize this tonight, that what is common is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. You see, we could only say that Jesus Christ is Lord from our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he who does not have the Holy Spirit does not have Christ. And so we need to say and emphasize that what is normative in all conversion is the blessed gift of the Holy Spirit. All believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit at that new birth. All are given the same Holy Spirit. Do you remember the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel prophesying about the new covenant? He says this, the Lord says this, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's what happens to every child of God. God takes away that heart of, that hard heart, that stony heart, and he gives a new heart. And he makes a person new in Christ Jesus. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. We all come into a knowledge of Jesus Christ by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did not Jesus say this in John chapter 7 verse 37? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free and have all been made to drink into one spirit. The spirit of God has baptized us into the church of Jesus Christ, into that one body, whoever we are, whatever background, male, female, slave or free, Greek or Jew, whoever we are, by the spirit of God, we've been born into the church of Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. What is common to every believer is that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We become temples of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. A mark of being a believer in Jesus Christ is that we know the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit is within us, there will be love, joy, peace to a measure, 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God will be at work in us by his spirit. So my friends, as I close this evening's message, I don't want us to be embroiled over the controversy. Were these believers who hadn't yet been given um, the fullness of the spirit? They had in measure the spirit, but they needed the fullness. They needed the second blessing. Well, we'd need to go into a long study about that. The spirit, he works as he will. He is free. He can give us more blessings. He can give us um, greater blessings, as many blessings as he wishes. But the important thing is this. Have you believed in Christ? And have you known him, the Spirit of God, at work in your life? Have you then testified to your faith through baptism, nailing your colours to the mast? I belong to Christ. I am his and he is mine. And I want to tell the world through the waters of baptism. Twelve men were converted, about twelve. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see some men converted in our churches. Let's pray for that. Pray for women also. Pray for boys and girls also. Let's pray that God would work. What an encouragement to the Apostle Paul that faced so much opposition and difficulty, and so much suffering for the, the, the sake of Christ. What an encouragement to come to Ephesus, to come across these 12 disciples of John and to see them professing faith and being baptized. May that happen also in our churches for the glory of Christ, that he might rejoice and we would rejoice with him.